cliffcentral.com. Ben Goldsmith is the author of God is an Octopus, Lust, Love, and A Calling to Nature, which is out now. And I'm very, very happy to talk to Ben. It's not the first time we've spoken. I met him in London some time ago. And we had fascinating conversations about eels in the Sargasso Sea and lots of other interesting things. But I have to congratulate you on this book. And I have to commiserate with you uh, about the, the, the awful things that transpired that brought about this book, um, which we could talk about in a minute. But very lovely to talk to you again, Ben. How are you? Great to see you, Gareth. Thank you for your kindness. Thanks for having me on the show. And it's great, it's great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get straight into the book. You didn't um, suddenly decide that you wanted to write uh, a story uh, about loss and about the the incredible events that have happened and, and taken place in your life and the life of your family in the last while. Uh, a terrible tragedy occurred on your farm in Somerset, and um, you lost your daughter uh, just a few years ago. And it's it's an awful thing, I'm sure, that they always say there's nothing worse in the world than for a parent to lose a child. It's just it seems you know, a perverse way for things to work should go the other way around. Um, it's, it's been a few months. This, this book is absolutely incredible. I was talking to my producer about it earlier and she was saying it's written so beautifully and there isn't a handbook for parents who are going through anything like this that there shouldn't be, but there are people who all over the world who are going through these things. It seems to me this may fill the gap of being a handbook if it isn't to say too much. Yeah, I, I hope that the book will be helpful to people who are experiencing that darkness. I mean, it's it's a darkness that you think you would never survive. You know, it's it's every parent's worst nightmare. And um, anyone who's known grief knows that there's a feeling of hopelessness and a kind of feeling of fear that is all encompassing. And um, in, in my case, I've always had a deep love of nature. I've always been fascinated by wildlife and always wanted to spend all of my spare time outside since my earliest memories and um, I was amazed in the early days after losing Iris that there were shards of light through that darkness when I spent time in nature. You know, I, I couldn't imagine that I would find beauty or let alone joy or meaning anywhere. I just thought I have to survive. I have other children. I have a young wife. I've got a big family. I've got people who depend on me. I know I have to survive this somehow, but it's going to be a slog. And so when I found myself two, three, five days later, finding occasional shards of light when I swam in the pond or when the bird song was particularly good very early in the morning, I had a cup of tea in my hand. I was kind of amazed, you know, and, 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 and so that's slowly in time. That's, that's where I found um, a, a way to survive. This was spending time in the natural world. Let's just uh, talk about the, the, the circumstances of, of Iris's death, because the, these are the kinds of things that people need to know up front before they can ever understand a story. And it must've been difficult to tell this story, especially because, I suppose that, you know, you're letting people into a very private world and into a very private kind of pain. Um, and, and you're not the sort of person who's, who's going on every talk show trying to t talk about yourself or your life or your family or any of that stuff. God knows you get enough attention as it is, I'm sure, in your opinion, uh, from unwanted ears and eyes. But to do this must have been a, a, you must have thought about it quite long and hard before you decided to do it. And then go into the story of what, what happened on that day. Yeah, we, we play cricket, my family. We, we, I have two sons um, who are cricket mad. I have two nephews who are the sons of my sister and, and her ex-husband, Imran Khan, and a handful of old school friends, and we have a cricket team. And um, we play six, seven, eight games against local village sides. 
in Somerset each summer. And um, on that particular day, we were playing a side at a place called Charterhouse. And uh, sometime after lunch, I was walking the boundary with my oldest son. And one of the, my teammates came running around the boundary, ashen-faced, said there's been an accident, handed the phone to me. You know, that, that, that call that everyone dreads. You know, Iris has turned over the, the vehicle that we called the mule. It was a kind of Polaris seater kind of farm vehicle with a truck bed at the back. Not the kind of vehicle you play on. It wasn't a quad bike. This was not a vehicle that was fast. It's a kind of lumbering thing that we sort of utility vehicle. It's kind of the boring option if if you mm. want to drive around my place. And, um, you know, she'd been driving it since she was eight, nine years old, always quite sensibly. And I, 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 I said to Kate, what's she gone and done? Kate is my ex-wife, Iris's mother. What's she gone and done? And Kate said the words, she's not breathing, Ben. And um, the, the, yeah, my heart sort of stopped. My blood ran cold. You know, it's that, it's that, it's that moment that everyone dreads that cool. And so um, I was, I managed to get to the back of a pavilion. There was a building site. So I sank to my knees in the presence of two builders who happened to be in there on their tea break begged them to do something. What are they, my, my daughter's been in an accident. Please help. And one of them tried to pass me water and I didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine grabbed me and just put me in a car and just, we began driving back. And by the time I got there, um, Kate had arrived from a different direction. That's my ex-wife. Um, we'd spoken in the car, you know, I was, I was you know, desperate in the car and, and she said you know you know why they're not picking up the farm nobody's picking up because they don't want to tell us that she's dead i said don't say it please don't say it but we got there and she was right you know uh, there was a paramedic a policeman and the vast majority of the people who'd been there trying to save her had already gone there'd been a helicopter ambulance and other things and they asked if you know confirm our names and if we knew what had happened that day and then they they led us into the side of an ambulance where our iris 15 and a half years old beautiful sparkling girl and full of life just an hour earlier was lying, you know, in, in you know, half zipped up in a kind of dreadful black body bag. I mean, it's, it's in that moment, you wonder if it's really you, you know, are you, you know, I, I was, I, I was most concerned in that moment about Kate, you know, the mother of this child. And we're very close. My ex-wife and I were both remarried. We remained the best of friends. And um, I couldn't bear to be in the presence of a mother standing, looking at her dead daughter. And uh, and then I heard the car roll up. The two boys arrive. We managed to get out of the ambulance, shut the ambulance before they arrived. And I told them what had happened and we held each other. And all throughout those those minutes, I felt like I was looking at this from a third party perspective. This isn't really you. You know, you're in a you're in a movie here of some sort. You, know, you almost want to kind of metaphorically pinch yourself. Is this really you? Um so that's how we lost our Iris, who was a star. We, was, we were only 22 and 20 when she was born, Kate and I. We had this kind of bohemian marriage. We were very young. Everyone said they're far too young to get married. And we had this little baby kind of strapped to Kate or to me. And, and we, we kind of grew up together. She was almost a little sister to me, really, Iris. And, and a brilliant girl, you know, a scholar and a little beauty and charismatically mm. so powerful. And she, she used her own charisma and her own popularity to lift the younger ones and the weaker ones up. You know, the, the letters that came from other parents and from other kids you've been at school with subsequently were just heartbreaking, you know, heartbreaking for us. Um, but, but also, um, they made us so proud. You know, she was a star. Um, so I, um, I spent a year afterwards of what you might say of magical thinking, 
you know, I'd never, never thought about life after death. What happens when you die? These, these things weren't things I spent much time thinking about. You know, I have never been religious. I was christened and confirmed a Christian because it gave me a week of school. You know, I, you know, I, I didn't, I, for me, um, I found enough, enough meaning in nature. You know, I've been an, a, a passionate nature lover and an environmentalist all my mm-hmm. life. You know, that, that it, there was enough in the real world that we can touch and feel that I didn't need to go looking for magic elsewhere. But when you lose someone very close to you, it, even if you've never asked such questions before, you start, you, you can't help but wondering where the hell are you? you know, where have you gone? What, you search for an ongoing trace. Please just give me a sign. Tap me on a shoulder. Let me, is that little bird? Is that little bird that's following me around the garden? Is that some kind of representation? What, you, know, you you beg for answers. And the first place I went to was the local vicar, who was a very kindly man who lost his own daughter in youth. And um, and, and then I, I began a year of kind of exploration and trying to understand what what generations of humans through time have believed happens to us when we die. Um, and so it was two years later that I decided to write a book, you know, that, that, that when you start to emerge from this and you learn how to live with this loss, you know, it doesn't go away. It doesn't become any less heavy. But it becomes kind of smoother, kind of rounded at the edges. You know, you, you sort of warmer. In a, in, a, in a strange way, you come to love the weight of your loss because it's the place where the ongoing connection with the person you've lost resides. And and you can see it with a certain clarity and perspective after a number of years. And I thought, I'll write a book about that year of, of magical thinking. And so that's the book I've written. So the title, God is an Octopus, you can explain to us in, in a second, but I, I love this connection with nature. And I think that there's so much that you can take from that, that all of us, while you're, while you're alive, while you're vital, while you have relationships with people, and then later on a place to commune with them, as you, as you mentioned before, um, I think you have to have a special connection to the fact that all of this goes on, whether we're here or not. And I think that you know, seeing plants and animals and knowing that we're part of that too is actually both a humble and an elevating thing at the same time. And reading your words about it, I, I really get that feeling very sincerely. Yeah, I mean, look, in South Africa, where you guys are, you have tremendous nature. You know, have extraordinary national parks. You have still have a lot of wildlife. You know, you, it's on your doorstep. You know, mm. This country that I live in, the United Kingdom, is one of the most intensively farmed, heavily developed, densely populated places on the planet. And as a result, it's one of the most nature depleted places on the planet. Any of your listeners who've been to a British national park, for the most part, will know that we don't really have nature left in this country. It's, it's, um, you, know, you see a lot of sheep, <laughs> not many yeah. trees, not much. I, I mean, it's uh, beautifully, to, in its defense, it's, you know, again, from the, from the objective point of view, an outsider, it's beautifully cultivated and parts of England, like where you are in Somerset, are of course, no absolutely doubt. breathtakingly beautiful. So. Of course, but a lot of the, the, but, but to, 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 to a significant degree, those landscapes have been stripped of their vibrancy. So the noise of crickets and the bird song and the color of wildflowers mm. and so on have largely been drained from those landscapes. So those pretty patchwork quilts you see of, of, of neat fields and so on have been mm. tidied and, um, and sanitized of nature. And now there is a rewilding movement in this country that is overwhelmingly popular among the public and which is now, um, uh, uh, supported by the government. So the government's now offering 
payment oh, to the landowners to restore nature. So there is this flourishing of nature that's happening in certain parts of our country that is very, very novel and very exciting. You know, the American conservation movement says if you can rewild Iowa, you can rewild anywhere. Well, I say if you can rewild England, you can rewild anywhere. And so I live in a landscape in in South Somerset, which is a kind of an, a kind of expanding ink blot of rewilding, because the rewilding is typically taking place in landscapes that are not agriculturally productive, places that are of the lowest productivity. So the opportunity cost of restoring nature is very low or or, or non-existent. Mm-hmm. And so where we are in Somerset, I, I I am part of a group of neighbors who are restoring nature. In quite a dramatic sense, we've got beavers and we've got wild boar back. And these are species I saw, that I, I saw an, uh, a headline in a, a stupid article, but it was nonetheless, I think, credit worthy of, of, of your contribution um, that you'd, you'd released a bunch of fallow deer, red deer into the in, in, into the property. And some people had a problem with this or there was some local councillor who thought that this wasn't appropriate. So you're obviously dealing with some onerous legislation and a lot of bureaucracy too, aren't well, you? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to reintroduce species in this country. As it happens, getting communities on board is quite important, as I've learned. And But the red deer, <laughs> which, it, which is the largest ungulate in Britain, it's a really important species and extinct from my part of Britain for at least 200 years, is now back in our landscape because of a slightly reckless move I made in releasing some. Um, back in 2021 Um, but they and they've survived and they're they're like ghosts in the forest they've learned how to thrive and how to hide Um, but but there so there is a kind of ecological recovery happening in across patches of England and I'm spent a lot of my time and effort in in helping to foster that movement I I was in the government environment department at the time that Iris died I had a five-year term there and helped to design the new uh, incentives that the government now provides for for nature restoration so exciting things are happening and in, in my case, this was the place in which I derived a sense of hope and purpose and meaning and, and in time joy during the darkest time of my life. You know, I, I realized that this meant more to me, not less since, since mm. the loss of my daughter. Um, I think, you know, I think there's, there's a kind of growing understanding everywhere about how much we need nature, how, how intrinsically important nature is to our existence. Now, I, I think that we've taken nature for granted for a long time in a, in a way that the indigenous communities of the world have not. You know, it's mm-hmm. no coincidence, no coincidence that 80% of the world's intact ecosystems today are in the stewardship of indigenous people because they get it in a way that thus far we don't. But we are now, I think, beginning to understand that on top of the tangible things that nature provides for us, the clean air, the clean water, the t- timber to build our houses with, the soil in which to grow our food, the pollinating insect, insects in which to uh, pollinate our fruit trees and other crops and so on, there is, there is a deeper need for nature that is starting to reveal itself to us. Now, we now understand that when we walk through the forest, the trees are emitting volatile organic compounds that make us feel good. You know, they, they lower our heart rate. They reduce our mm. blood pressure. They, why? We don't know. Why do the trees have this communication with us? Why do they make us feel this way? It's beyond us, but we know it's the case. That's why the Japanese Health Service now prescribes forest bathing to, to a whole array of different patients in their care. You know, it's, it's understood that spending time in nature is, is vitally important to our physical, our mental, and our spiritual well-being. We're connected in a way that we can't quite understand. So I, I find um, I find that during the time when I needed it most, I was carried by this benevolence, this nature all around me, and that's, it does that's seem, kind of the meaning of the book. It does seem to me though that you already had this connection to nature before this happened, and if anything, this must have intensified that. 
Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I quite growing up, I used to go to a dinner party and sit next to some, you know, kind of friend of my mom's or something who'd say, oh, you're Ben, you're the one that, that loves nature, you know, as if it's on a par with kind of stamp collecting or, you know, model railways or something. And, and I, I knew I had a kind of yearning to be in nature the whole time. And I definitely cared yeah. about these things a lot. I mean, I won the Star Letter age 14 uh, to, to the Country Life magazine in which I said uh-huh. that their readership lack imagination on the subject of wild boar and how we should have them back in our land. I didn't tell my teenage friends at the time that I'd won a pair of binoculars from uh, from the Country Life magazine. So I was always kind of somewhat fanatical about nature, and, but but it was a kind of a kind of hobby that I loved. It was only when I was in dire straits, you know, struggling for air, you know, mad with grief, mm. that I realized that it's much more than that. That this was an essential thing for me. And I think it's true of everyone. I think we all need nature. I think if we go out and spend time in the natural world in a garden, we're among some wildflowers, we hear birdsong, just a moment of reflection in nature is enough to make a whole day feel better, no matter what yeah. the situation. Um, well, I mean, I think there are psychologists now who are prescribing that you should sit in the morning for the first few minutes and just, you know, stare at, not at the sun directly, but, you know, the light of the sun and have it, have it touch your face because that's the best way to start your day and, in in all eras of human civilization before this one, it would have been the first indication that it was appropriate to be awake. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, that was where everything had to start. Well, what I, I get, since I wrote this book, and, and in fact, since I lost Iris, I get contacted quite often by people saying, look, my best friend has lost their husband, lost their daughter, so this kind of thing. And I, 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 I mean, I could make a career as a grief counselor now, I think. <laughs> um, and I always say in those early days, you know, don't, don't forget the basics and make sure you eat. It's easy to forget to eat. Make sure you sleep. Even if you have to take something, just make sure you find a way to sleep at night and uh, and spend some time in nature each day. Just find a way to get out. You know, if you can swim in a river or a pond or if you can just walk in the park, if you're in the city, it makes you feel better. It gives you a moment you, of relief. You said also in the book, and I, I, I was paying attention to the specific rituals and things that were happening in the immediate aftermath and how those also helped you through. You said, you know, it was you, you restrict you were careful about drinking but you weren't fanatical you were careful about cigarettes you were careful about who you were around and and luckily you also have this big supportive family which i think is an enormous help to anyone who's going through anything even remotely like this yeah um but those those little rituals help don't they yeah i I think the, the way i'd put it is um i think grabbing moments of of light in the darkness wherever they come and whenever they come is vital you can often feel guilty i you know why should i be enjoying this cup of tea with the sunshine on my face when uh when she's dead you know at the age of 15 mm. and a half how you know how you know i think people s- struggle to allow themselves to feel good because there are moments when things happen moments of levity you know, my son who at the time was 11 you know he kind of stumbled and fell in the pond at one stage and we were all swimming anyway and messing around you know and, and and it was quite soon after. And I remember it was very funny and just allowing yourself to laugh when something silly happens. You know, these are, mo- you, they're so hard won, these moments of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of lightness. You have to grab them with both hands. Um, and in terms of the kind of dulling effect of alcohol, cigarettes, you know, these kind of things, you know, a, a little bit's okay, but too much brings the opposite effect. I think, you know, you lose control of yourself. I was interested to see that you'd remembered a book that you'd had at school. Uh, chronicle of death foretold and that this came back to you suddenly in this moment of 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 your own personal grief that's interesting it's 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 curious what the brain 
clings to because I'm sure while you were reading that book at school, it meant absolutely as much as the next book or the previous one. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez describes a young man's death, but it, it, it takes you through all the little minutiae that happened in the run up to the death. And the point is that at any turn along the way, had things gone very slightly differently, the young man would not have died. You know, a door closed at a particular moment when it was normally open or a person who would have been on the street corner in that moment wasn't there that day or whatever. These tiny moments that build up, you know, seemingly improbably to his death, describe a death that is therefore foretold. It was always going to happen. Mm. And I think that's how... When, when you lose someone, especially in an accidental death like, like we did, you go through this agonizing period of what ifs. You know, what if Iris had come the following day, which was the original plan, you know, and I'd been there? You know, what if people had been working in that particular field and had lifted the vehicle off her? What, what if she'd taken mm. a different vehicle? What if, you know, what well, if you said um, a different route, you know, or a different route or there were the innumerable what ifs and you agonize over each and every one, especially as a kind of father in a family, you, you, you know, yeah. I make things better. I'm the guy who solves problems in my family. You know, the, the people, you know, I'm, I'm good at solving oh. problems. And, and when there is nothing that can be done, there's nothing you can do. You can't give that girl her life back. You can't give the family this lodestar of a girl back to them. It, there's nothing you can do. You, you, it, it's like a, it's like a vehicle in a, in a, in a garage. You ever seen a car like lifted off the, off the floor and they re- rev the engine and the wheels go around with no tarmac and the engine over revs and that's how they test the engine. That's what your brain does going over these what ifs. And eventually you just exhaust it because what's, what's the point that you, that you can't change it. You know, the, what has been the greatest curse of it that there's nothing you can do about it becomes somehow a blessing because it just gives you relief that I can't do anything about this. But those what ifs um, are described so well in that book, um, Chronic of a Death mm-hmm. Foretold, because that was Iris's death. You know, she just three, four, five days of little minutiae that had they gone slightly differently, she'd have lived. Yeah. Which makes you wonder, is there a grand plan? You know, is, do we have a defined, do we have a defined plan in this world in some way? You know, to what extent do we have free will? You know, do we have, and a- are you, are you any closer to, to cracking those questions for yourself? So having gone from a place of zero religious or spiritual sensibility, save a love of nature, you know, a, d- a deep, seemingly spiritual love of nature, I now um, am convinced that that we are part of a grand mystery, but one which is beyond our ability to understand. I think the whole thing is stranger than we're capable of understanding. I, I believe that the, the physical reality that we see and feel all around us is just the tip of a, of a much larger iceberg. You know, much of which is not clear to us or not perceptible with our five senses. You know, I, I very much feel an ongoing connection with my daughter, Iris. I feel that the sense of closeness that is difficult to prove or to explain to you now here on this show, because it's so different from everything that I perceive with my senses. And, and yet it's, it's very real, you know, and very powerful, uh, sometimes overwhelming. So I have a sense that um, outside of kind of space and time, there is a much grander reality. And you could call that God. I think the religions of the world create a kind of vessel in which people can hold these feelings in some organized and understandable way. Or they provide an attempt to explain things that are difficult to explain or impossible to explain. Um, so how, am I religious? Not in a traditional sense. Do I, do I think I have any answers? No, I'm, I'm just I'm just now very much of the view that 
we're part of something big and incomprehensible and benevolent and magical. And the bit we get to see and touch is the natural world. And that's why it helps us so much. It's why it makes us feel good being in nature, because it is the face of something far larger and far more mysterious that, that we come from. Lots of people make a, a big fuss of this word closure. You know, they talk about how, for example, if you don't get to say goodbye or if you don't have a ceremony or a funeral or something else to, to be able to, you know, say your, your final bits and pieces to people who've meant a tremendous amount to you. They say that, well, if you don't have that closure, that, that, that is a major problem. Is, is that something that you can confirm in your, in your own experience? Or is, is it perhaps this ongoing thing? And, and you did say earlier that it never goes away and, and the heaviness of it never goes away. Um, is it your experience that, that closure is this big deal? I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, so many people have a loss that is just completely out of the blue and unexpected. Um, is their loss harder to bear than someone who sits by a hospital bed for a period of time? I don't know because I don't know what the other feels like. Um, I, I'd say that the religions of the world have their little methods of helping you get through that early time. You know, my grandfather was a Jew and the Jews have a year of no music. Well, I couldn't bear to listen to music for a year. You know, it used to trigger me in the most painful way I can now, hmm. but I understand now that thing of not going to the theater or even movies I found hard to watch in the first year, because there was always something in the movie that would trigger me and I'd be a, a, a mess. So I, I think they, this thing of having friends and family around bringing food to you in the mm. first weeks, you know, that, that whole thing, I used to think that must be a nightmare when you're bereaved, being surrounded by people. But in practice, you get carried along on a kind of wave of kindness and love by people popping in and out the whole time. So I, I think the religions have found a way to help give us a sense of, um, well, to give us a sense of comfort and to give us kind of a practical way of coping with the darkness of those early months. Um, I don't necessarily have any particular religion to fall back on in that way, but a lot of those things happened anyway for me. Um, so I, um, I don't know about closure. I mean, does, do you, do you get over it? Well, I'm mm. fine today. I mean, in the sense that I'm pretty bulletproof, I'm having this conversation with you, you know, I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not sobbing on the, on the radio kind of thing. And I, you know, mm. I'm able to, I, I'm, I fight and play with my kids on the, on the grass in front of my house. And I laugh with my wife and I see my friends and I'm excited about the ashes series. And so I'm alive and four years later, I'm alive. And in a way I, I feel a deeper and greater sense of joy than I did previously because it's hard won. And I feel a greater respect for life and I feel a greater sense of gratitude for the things that I've got. And, um, but, but, but do I miss Iris? Yes. I miss her as much as I did on the first day. I miss her terribly. I've just learned how to, um, I think I've just learned how to live with that, to live alongside that. You know, we, none of us ask for these things, you know, the, these terrible things happen and you have no choice in the matter. You do anything to turn back the clock and undo it, but you can't, that's not in our gift. But they do come with gifts in their own right. You know, like among the rubble, there are these kind of jewels, you know, a greater sense of gratitude and appreciation, a deeper sense of joy, a greater expansiveness in, in, of consciousness around what, what the world is. You know, the, it, it, there's no doubt that they leave you changed and in some senses changed for the better, these events. Um, but I'd give anything. I mean, I'd give anything, obviously, to, to turn back the clock and have my girl back. Yeah. It's a very un-English conversation we're having, actually. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I've always been 
described as the least English English person <laughs> that my fr- my foreign friends know. And my book, I've you know I've tried to lay it on you know lay it all out there exactly what my stream of consciousness was for a year, and it's very authentic. That's why Bloomsbury didn't really edit the book. They sort of mm. they, they gave me some very helpful kind of tweaks and so on, but they fundamentally printed it as I wrote it. Um, and um, and and beneath the water of my book is a very comprehensive roadmap for rewilding a place like Britain. Cause that was the book I always thought one day I would write would be quite a scientific manual for how we can go about restoring natural yeah. vibrancy to our Island. But, but it's told through the lens of a much more personal story. And, and this is the meaning of my life now. Well, it, well, it is, it is very English though, to have sacred natural places. I mean, they've always been from sort of old, you know, ancient Britain and Druids and all the way through the middle ages, there were, trees where kings were shot with arrows and there were magic places where you know important rocks were put up to 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 denote or to to demarcate places that had been important in some sacral way i mean you talked about your your daughter iris's big magic tree in the back garden yeah um those kinds of places i think people really do feel that there are there are still magic places there are still uh trees and rocks and and little streams that that are that carry some kind of magic. Yeah, and if you go to most English churches, you'll find that the trees, the, mostly yew trees that surround those churches, are older than the churches themselves. So the, the mm-hmm. early Christians built their churches in the Celtic holy places, and the Celts used to remember their dead with circles of different kinds, wood hinges and stone hinges, and of various shapes and sizes, but circles. And that's what we did for my Iris in the spot where she died. You know, a guy showed up, a friend of a friend, and you know, said this kind of camper van and said, this is what I do. I build stone circles. And, and the hmm. idea was appealing. And the kind of confusion and the kind of um, the chaos of those early weeks, I sort of said, I'd, I'd love that. But I didn't have the capability to make it happen. And thankfully, members of my family jumped on it, and it happened. So now we have this extraordinary stone circle in the middle of a what is a fast-expanding stretch of wild wood pasture in Somerset. There is this strange wood uh, stone circle and and i go and sit in that spot quite often sometimes in the evenings then iris was very auburn in in her coloration and my mm. mother used to say she has autumnal coloring and sometimes i sit there at the last light and the sky is kind of pink and orange and the trees are the color of the leaves are turning as they do in the autumn in england to those kind of shades of yellow and orange and and and, and red and i feel like the entire world has been painted in the colors of iris as if she's everywhere and so that there's something artistic about that. Um, but yeah, mostly it's just a place, to, mostly it's just a place to get away from everyone and cry. You have to cry. I find it mm. much harder than, much harder now than it was at the start. But if you go weeks without crying, um, it builds up. And this doesn't matter whether you're bereaved or not. I think any, I think we all occasionally need to find a way to cry because it makes you feel far better. <laughs> That's something <laughs> I've learned. That's useful. That's very interesting to, to keep that in mind. Um, you, you tell, in your book, the horrible story of uh, the ortolan, which is a, a, a French songbird, which um, I was actually talking to some friends about it just the other day. It, it seems to be one of these almost mythical things that gourmands used to do as the ultimate food ritual. It was sort of what French g- gastronomers, I suppose, considered the apex activity of anyone who wanted to experience the, the most incredible sensations of taste available to man but it's also the cruelest and nastiest thing and you go into some detail in it in the book i just for the for the <laughs> for the for the titillation of anyone listening to this um 
and pop, perhaps the horror too. Just explain what what this practice consisted of. So I, I mean, I, I describe the practice of eating ortolan, which doesn't have to be actually. Um, there is an ortolan bunting, which is a particular yes. little songbird, but it can be almost any small bird. I described it because of the European practice of shooting migrating birds in large numbers, particularly around the Mediterranean, southern France, across kind of Cyprus, Lebanon, Malta, and huge numbers of migrating birds that spend the winter in Africa and spend the summer in Europe or further north get slaughtered, often just for the fun of it. And um, one of the practices that's emerged from this massacre is to eat these songbirds where they're, they're kind of fattened, they're blinded and then fattened. And then they're kind of boiled alive in a sort of cognac-y kind of oil and then eaten whole. So you kind of crush the rib cage. I mean, it's a really kind of a decadent way to eat. You, you're supposed to put a na- handkerchief over your head when you eat it, according to the tradition, you know, e- either to hide the mess or to hide your shame from God, you know, according to legend. Yeah. The, 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 the practice of eating wildlife, I think, is kind of fine if it's done sustainably. There's something particularly interesting and gross about eating the ortolan in this way. But 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 the practice of blasting millions of migratory birds out the sky such that their numbers are collapsing is completely unacceptable in my view. So I just I described in one chapter the autumn after Iris died and my reflections on the how little we do to protect the great flyways. You know, the, the East East Atlantic Flyway is one of the most important in the world for migrating birds, and we've just smashed it all the way along, removed the stopover points, the wetlands and so on and terrible hunting and all kinds of things happening so that the the abundance of these extraordinary movements of birds back and forth has just diminished catastrophically in the last 40 or 50 years um so i I think i'd like to see an international effort you know i'd love to see all the countries of the east african flyway from senegal all up to all up to iceland have a treaty in which they just make a real effort together to protect the, the the sites that are needed for those birds to have a safe passage north and south. I mean, there's a kind of music in the migration of birds. I saw an amazing move, moving image which shows the movement of birds up and then down and up and then down and others going east to west, west to east, east to west. And if you look at it on a, on a kind of planetary scale, it's like a musical symphony. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, they say that the, the kind of currency of nature is musical. I mean, it, it I can, you kind of understand it when you see migrating bird patterns speeded up. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it, it, what you're talking about here reminds me of that conversation you and I had um, when we were in London five years ago. Yeah. Um, who would have known what what would transpire afterwards? But you were you were fascinating about these eels, which they for years misunderstood. People thought that eels uh, were, were, were secretly uh, producing eggs from nothing, or almost. Uh, converting sex in, in, you know, mid kind of stream of, of a river and then producing offspring out of nowhere. And turns out that they were, they were breeding far away in the Sargasso Sea and then coming all the way back and going up the rivers again. Amazing, yeah, it, amazing it, stories. It, Things like that are just, I mean, we, we think we know everything about nature. You know, we think we've figured it all out and we, we've got the, the breadth and depth of knowledge and there are only a few tiny unexplored places deep, deep, deep in the sea or, it's not but true. Who'd, I mean, who'd, who'd, who'd have thought, for example, um, you know, that the, the, the trees in a forest are not only communicating with each other via a kind of vast fungal wood wide web, they call it, but also mm-hmm. passing each other nutrients. You know, you get a sick tree in the forest, even of a different species, and the others around it will kind of support it. Um, and there's a growing body of understanding that maybe the trees themselves are not the ones directing these exchanges and this communication, but the fungal web itself 
such that the forest itself has a kind of a brain. I mean, it's you know, th- th- this would have been con- considered Incredible. completely wacky ten years ago, yeah. and now this science is becoming quite well understood. This this connectedness of all living things through fungal um, um, uh, hi-fi through the soil, or, or or that acacia trees in the African savanna, East African savanna, when they get nibbled by a giraffe, will send out a kind of chemical scream to warn all their neighbors to send toxins to their leaves to deter the giraffes. I mean that. <laughs> the, the, everything is talking to everything. And we had no idea of this a few years ago. So I think we're only, we, 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 we know barely a fraction of the mystery, you know, barely a fraction of it. That's why the idea that there is more than we can, than we can see and feel and understand with science is, 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 um, is appealing, I think, because it's quite likely that there is. Um, your, your, family a, a, a remarkable uh, bunch of people you really are i mean your your dad and your mum your your brother zach your sister jemima your own wife jemima um the, the your children these are all people your nieces and nephews uh these are these are all people who are uh, you know making very interesting contributions in various ways shapes and forms i saw zach has gone from being an mp to being in the house of lords now and and continues to campaign quite hard for the environment yeah, he, well he's too. a minister he's he's the uk international minister for climate right. and environment now so he's all over the world right. doing exciting things so i mean this is this is all very very interesting a lot of people don't know that you know, you've, you've also been involved in both business and environmental causes probably since you finished school. I mean, it's, it's not, uh, there's so much to talk about in that respect. But what are you busy with at the moment? What, having written this book and having found the time to write this book and having been through what you have, um, you're not the sort of person to rest in your laurels. I'm sure that there are lots of things still keeping you occupied. And, and, and is being busy an important part of all, all this healing as well? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a busy person. I, I, I love to get stuff done. I, mean, I, 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 I think I balance well time spent with my family and time spent trying to productively getting stuff done. Um, but I'm always doing something. And um, so I have a career in investment. I have a, a, mm. a, a fund which invests in a pretty conservative and sensible way, but in businesses which are aligned with the Paris climate process. And I mean, our, our biggest holding right now is Microsoft. So, I mean, it's not, it's not as if, um, it's it's wildly exciting. I mean, it's 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 sensible investing <laughs> in a way that and and it's, it's we've done well. We we produce ten percent annualized performance for seven and a half years now. So it's you know it's called Manhattan, named after a fish. And I enjoy working with my partners. It's it's not a full time thing. I think I'm too frenetic. Uh, they don't want me f- all the time thinking about the portfolio. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, I'd be pushing for trading and venture capital deals, and 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 and, and they just want calm. And uh, and it's working. <laughs> So I've set up a separate fund um, more recently, which is which has the goal of turning rewilding into an asset class. Oh, so yeah? what I what I mean by this is, you know, if, if you're an investor, you know, either an ordinary investor with a small pension pot, or or a big institution like the British Telecom Pension Fund or the University Superannuation Scheme in London, hmm. you can invest in a whole range of different asset classes. You can buy. Uh, airports, you can buy student accommodation, you can buy forest, commercial forest assets. You know, these products all exist in the world's financial ecosystem. You can buy shares in companies that give you exposure to almost any kind of asset class. But rewilding, in other words, creating new, wild, vibrant, natural places has always been a thing of charity. It's always required people's goodwill. You know, it's been done by NGOs and to some extent by governments. Mm. It's never been considered an asset class. And I think the way in which we create new wild places at the scale it needs to be done all over the world is if we can get those wild places to produce enough of an investment return 
each year that they become investable for you and me. You know, you and me can buy shares in something that gives us our little yield that we need in order to live. You know, pension funds, for example, they have to produce a yield so that they can pay out money each year to their pensioners. So they can't just give the money away. They have to earn a financial return if they're going to invest in something. If we can produce a yield from rewilding, then we create a new asset class and we can expand rewilding all over the world. And so what that might look like would be um, to buy a very large farm of some sort in, say, England um, and to rewild it, a farm on, on land which is not suitable for agriculture. A lot of the land in Britain is very low productivity. It's only farmed because of the old subsidy regime, which used to reward people just for farming land, even if it wasn't suitable for it. Nice. And you create, a, you create a new mini Kruger and you generate a return from that piece of land through nature tourism. You do that really well, but also natural capital. There are now markets that reward uh, healthy ecosystems for the provision of clean water. The British water companies now pay for this stuff because they know that healthy ecosystems give you clean water. Uh, biodiversity credits and big companies now want to be nature positive. So they will, it's a kind of corporate philanthropy, but they will buy credits to put in their annual report to say we're creating new nature around yeah. the world. Those credits are tradable. So I've set up a vehicle. We've raised some money. We've already bought two large pieces of land in England. And eventually we'll look beyond England and it, you don't need to buy land. You can also partner with communities and work on publicly owned land. You can, you can lease land. There's all different ways to do this from a structural perspective. But the fundamental idea is create new wild places that hum with nature and create enough of a financial return that people can invest in that process. Cause the amount of money out there in the financial markets is, is truly immense but the amount of yeah. charity money out there is very very small so we can create a step change and there's a lot of this happening in south africa now you see these new mm -hmm. conservancies community servant conservancies and private conservancies popping up and people making a return through nature tourism and other things yeah. so i think um that's my my goal and, is and, and uh, we see we see a huge number of, of you know very wealthy people who are reinvesting in kind of restoring nature and making sure that things go back and working with communities who have lived on or around those areas for the longest time to try and get everybody working together to, to, to prioritize the land. But I mean, in, 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 in Scotland, in, if you look up Highlands rewilding in the Scotland, that's a mass ownership model. So there's mm. no, that's not wealthy people. That's, that's communities coming together to buy large swathes of land to rewild it and generate a return for themselves. And their return mm -hmm. is not just the financial return, but also jobs and new nature around them and so on. So this can be done in any, in, in a number of different ways. And you want it to be as inclusive as, as, as possible. You want it, you want to include the people that live in those places in as many ways as you can to create economic activity for them. So that's the thing I'm working on now is this idea of, um, of, of dramatically scaling rewilding initially in England, but eventually around the world by turning it into something that people can put their money into as an investment. If that's, um, I think, um, sounds, sounds very, very sound. <laughs> um, I hope you'll come and visit South Africa sometime soon. And I know you've been in the forests and you've been, you know, all over the world exploring all these things. Your, your love for nature is, is abundant. And, uh, I hope that this book will also do a huge amount for those people who feel uh, perhaps a little hopeless sometimes people who have who've who've gone through the, the most dreadful things uh sometimes by accident sometimes they have time to prepare for it the loss nonetheless is going to be equally horrible for for both groups of people i think it's just tremendous that you've done this ben and you write beautifully and it's uh it's a, a great pleasure to to have read this book and to have had a window into something that most people would probably prefer to keep to themselves um 
I think it's to your credit that you've shared it. And I think many, many people benefit from that. Thank you, Gareth. You're really, really kind to have um, had me on and uh, your words mean a lot to me. And I look forward to seeing you on your next trip to London or my next trip to South Thank Africa. You. Just one last thing. God is an octopus because people always go to that question, but we'll save it for the end. So, so, the so I am, um, I am, um, I was persuaded by some, by some quite surprising people in my life that, that a, 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 a way in which I might get a glimpse of something beyond the dimension in which we live day to day would be to explore a kind of psychedelic experience. Now, I, th- this is very far outside of my normal experience in life. I, I wasn't one of those people who went to raves and took recreational drugs when I was younger. So this was t- took a certain leap of faith and a certain amount of courage for me to even investigate this, let alone ultimately to do it. Um, but that's what I did. A year after Iris died with some people I trust and with a professional guide with four assistants, I did this ceremony, which they call ayahuasca. Aya means in the language of the Amazon basin, it means uh, spirit and wasca means vine. And uh, this is the central kind of uh, spiritual and cultural um, practice of the peoples of the Amazon basin, which is to con- consume a, a brew a handful of times in their life, which gives them a psychedelic experience and a glimpse of the beyond. And, mm-hmm. um, and I did this and it was pretty damn extraordinary. And it also, um, it, it was a, a step change moment in learning to live with the, what's happened to us, you know, and, and it was sure. a huge, it was one of the most meaningful and beautiful, most beautiful experiences of my life. It's almost certainly a one-off. I can't imagine doing it again. I did it over two nights, but it was extraordinary. And what you see and experience, you can't then unsee or forget, you know, it leaves a lasting impression on you. Um, and I now understand why those peoples of that part of the world do this at moments of great individual or collective tribulation. And by the way, there's some very interesting studies now being done in the US and Canada, Australia, Switzerland with ayahuasca and other psychedelic compounds in the treatment of people with depression, um, anxiety, addiction, PTSD, PTSD, bereavement, fear of death. I mean, Toronto, they ran a study with 5,000 terminal patients, 85% of them declared that they had to some degree or totally lost their fear of death. So, you know, I think the, I think these psychedelic compounds offer a kind of cheat in the video game. They give us a glimpse of something else. And I don't know what that is. I don't have the answers. I just know that we're enveloped in some kind of benevolence, some kind of vast mystery. And that's where my iris is. And that's where one day I think I'll see her again in a way that maybe we can't describe now. Thank you, thank you, and uh, all the all the best to you and your your excellent work. Continue rewilding Britain, and we'll do our best down here to do the same. and uh, And bless you for the book. Well done. Thank you, Gareth. Bye. Thank you. Bye, bye, Ben.